The following KOPN podcast is made possible by the generous donations of listeners like you. Please consider a donation to listener-supported community radio, KOPN. You can donate securely on our website at kopn.org. Hi, welcome to Food Sleuth Radio, where we help you think beyond your plate. I'm Melinda Hemmelgarn, a registered dietitian and investigative nutritionist on a mission to connect the dots between food, health, and agriculture and find food truth. And I couldn't be more happy to welcome our guest today, Mr. Joe Maxwell. Joe Maxwell grew up on a family farm in a small Missouri town called Rush Hill. I know Joe because he spoke at the recent Missouri Rural Life Day, where he described his current position working with the Humane Society. He is Vice President of Outreach and Engagement, where he oversees the Rural Development and Outreach Program. Most importantly, he's a fourth-generation farmer, and he's going to connect the skills that he has gained as Missouri State Senator, Representative, and Lieutenant Governor, looking at policy and farm and the food on our plate. Joe, welcome. Linda, thank you so very much for having me on today. Well, I was so impressed with your panel presentation at Missouri Rural Life Day that I thought we really need to talk together and try to dispel some myths people have about the Humane Society and actually how you got there. So let's take us back for a moment, if you would, to your days on the family farm. You're a fourth-generation farmer. You and your brother still farm today. That's right. But what was it like growing up? How many crops did you produce Back then, what were some of the challenges that you faced then versus today? Well, I graduated from high school in 1975, so that will kind of date me. So usually any numbers and statistics, I always like to talk around 1978 to 80. Uh, After serving a period of time in the Army, I I filed my first taxes by myself as a farmer in about 78. So that's always kind of the benchmark. And at that time, we had cows and calves, not unlike many Missouri Farms very diversified, pigs. Uh, we always raised our own uh, hogs, uh, for not only for ourselves, but also commercially. And then we had corn, soybeans, wheat. We raised clover, a variety of different grasses to bale uh, to feed the cows. And so it was a very diversified farm as we came out of the late 60s and then into the 70s and early 80s. And what does that farm produce today? Well, the farm today uh, produces about the same thing. We cash rent some of it out. My brother and I now focus very heavily on intensified agriculture around livestock. And uh, we have a few more sows than we used to have. Uh, We still are in the hog business, uh, a few calves, and then still have some row crop. We do a lot of baling of hay and putting up grass hay and and different types of uh, hay for cattle. What do you remember the challenges being for your father and grandfather in their days of farming? I think that uh, early on when I was a, a very young boy and was helping my dad was was just having the capital resources mm-hmm. uh, to be able to make the farm work. Also, uh, access to lime, of all things. I, uh, I still remember the uh, program that came about where uh, uh, USDA came in and helped lime the fields to provide better yield and production. Uh, but uh, we we uh, had challenges around you know equipment and those type of things. But capital was a big problem uh, when my dad was farming. And how about today? Well, today it's access to markets. Yeah. When my dad was uh, raising, you know, we could uh, if we raised our uh, pigs and we could get the capital from the local bank, 
we had plenty of people wanting to buy our products. So whether you went down to the sale barn, you had plenty of order buyers. That was the day we'd sell most of our stock through uh, the sale barn. We got a fair market price uh, for our livestock. Matter of fact, our hogs back then were bringing about as much as they are today. Wow. Uh, yes. So uh, we really had access to markets. We had uh, a very strong, diversified rotation of crop. We had the uh, University of Missouri very much more in tune with a diversified farm and not just into animal science and and just into single-type crops as we are today. It was much more diversified mm-hmm. uh, type of farm operation. Well, one of the things that you said on the panel that I thought was worth repeating was you said, I raise hogs, I don't produce pork. Explain that. Well, I think one of the big shifts between the time my dad and my granddad was farming and teaching Steve and I about animal husbandry, uh, we saw a shift at the university and just the way in which uh, the pork board and National Pork Producers Council and all these uh, trade organizations began to shift where we took the animal out of the equation. And so we were no longer uh, stockmen, no longer animal husbandry. Instead, we worked everything so we could raise a beef steak or pork chop. Mm-hmm. And I never wanted that. I think that's where we've gone wrong in America. Uh, what I raise is hogs. Mm-hmm. I've got some calves. I raise calves and cattle. Mm-hmm. I have some chickens. We have eggs and some meat chickens. But I, I'm not a pork producer. I'm a pig farmer. Right. I'm very proud of the fact that we can raise our animals the way we do without having to feed them all their lives antibiotics, pump them full of different types of drugs to make them grow, promote their growth. We raise these animals in a natural environment where they can root, where they uh, have deep bedded systems, and I'm very proud of that. But that requires a whole different set of skills, and we're proud that we're pig farmers. Well, not only skills, but probably farm policies to support those practices, right? Well, that is one of the things, you know, what has happened in America is we've seen a shift not only at the university levels away from animal husbandry and into animal science, but we've also seen a huge shift in policy, whether that's in Jefferson City, Missouri, or in Washington, D.C. Government policies that uh, are pumping huge subsidies in, in directing our food policy. Mm-hmm. You know, we call it a farm bill. That thing has yet to pass. But everyone listening today should know that that's really their food bill. Whenever we're talking about agriculture policy, we're talking about what every one of your listeners will be eating at their table. That's right. And the kind of policies that we've seen have driven us to where we are just uh, these massive factory-type farming operations, huge amounts of chemicals being used, GMOs being used, a complete different type of agriculture than what I grew up with. Now, on our farm, we're working hard along with several other farmers to preserve uh, more of the way in which we think farming ought to be done, more of a family farm, traditional family farm operation. Now, something must have shifted. So the way in which your father and grandfather farmed was no longer the modern way of farming, right? We had this directional change. And the way the consumer hears the message is that, well, if you want cheap meat, if you want affordable meat, you have to switch over to this more modern form of livestock farming. And I'm hearing a different message from you. Well, I'll tell you, University uh, at Iowa did a seven-year study released 14 months ago. showed that a diversified farm with a four- and five-crop rotation 
more of the traditional way my dad taught me and my brother how to farm, my granddad, is just as efficient, just as effective, and just as profitable. Now, that doesn't sell a lot of chemicals for the big chemical companies. It doesn't sell a lot of antibiotics to stuff into the animals for pharma and the big pharmaceutical companies. Uh, But what it does do, it preserves and sustains the land, it respects the animal, and it provides a profit for the farmer and builds wealth for our rural economies. And so it did shift, but it didn't shift so that we can feed the world. It shifted so fewer people would be farming, fewer people would be in control of our food system. And Today it should be concerning to the citizens of this country about how few people actually control our food. And what should even be more concerning is what's in that food, and is it really healthy and is it safe. That's exactly right. That's why I was so hoping to have you on to reach our listeners, because you have had such a great perspective growing up on this farm and then moving into policy and seeing how farming practices have changed. And I wanted to ask you, what led you from the farm to work in policy? I looked around and saw that there were fewer neighbors. Uh, two things uh, interested me. I'm, I guess I, uh, I'm a student of kind of long where Thomas Jefferson, agrarian-type society, and that doesn't mean we're old-fashioned. doesn't mean we're a bunch of hippies. I've been called about everything. It means that we use modern technology to have an agrarian economy. And when I looked around in the 80s, as I said, we started farming uh, right after 75, I graduated high school. It was in the 80s that we began to see such a shift in agriculture, vertical integration of the chickens and the hogs and where animals were no longer seen as animals. And we didn't, my bro- when I say we, my brother and I didn't see that as farming. Caging and crating these animals and treating them as if they're just widgets in a factory is just wrong. Destroying the earth in order to raise one more bushel more or two more bushels more uh, to make it so mechanized that it's an industrial agriculture model uh, is just wrong. And when I saw that and many of the farmers being displaced from their land during the farm crisis in the 80s, I got what I really thought, Melinda, I thought, you know, I'm as smart as those people. If that's what results from their policy, I can at least do that good. In the last 35 years to 40 years, we've lost 1 million American farmers. 90% of the hog farmers have been displaced from the land since I began farming. That's what drove me to say, I, I'm going to figure out how this works. I'm going to become an advocate for the kind of agriculture that builds America, not destroys this earth. And I'm going to enter politics and get into policy because that's what makes the difference. You can have whatever food system you want so long as you have the policy behind it. We're choosing in America through our Congress and through our capital in Jefferson City to have the kind of poor food system that we have that disrespects the animal, the farmer, the land, and the rural economy. Absolutely. One of the things that is stated in your biography is that you went to the state House of Representatives and then to become a senator and lieutenant governor because you wanted to work against policies that you recognized as harmful to the rural economy, our environment, and animals. Can you identify a few policies that maybe you worked on while you were in Jefferson City and then more effectively now in your role working nationally? 
Can you identify some policies that are really key to protecting rural life and policies, on the other hand, that really work against having a healthy rural economy? I think, uh, first of all, here in the state of Missouri, our legislature in the last two years greatly limited the liability of vertically integrated hog operations. And that's why today in northeast Missouri, they're building, going to build up to 200 hog confinements. The legislature decided that if my farm and my, my property rights don't matter, if my neighbor wants to build a hog barn next to me, they ought to be able to do that. When I was in Jefferson City, we worked hard to ensure that there were setback requirements, that there was the ability for neighbors to be protected from uh, from the kind of folks that just want to go out just because they could, they would. The other issues that we have fought hard for is for open markets. When I was in the Missouri Senate, we passed uh, legislation that said packers could not own the livestock. We wanted to stop the vertical integration that's driving out the markets. Today, there's just not a market opportunity for an independent farmer. You have to sign up with Cargill or Smithfield, which is now owned by a Chinese company, or you don't have access to markets. Nationally, working very hard to ensure uh, that uh, the antitrust laws, the Sherman and Clayton Acts, are able to be enforced. Uh, it is uh, uh, staggering, uh, the acquisitions and mergers that have gone on in this country, allowing us to see uh, small packers being put out of business, which that means there's not access to a market for a farmer. Uh, environmental issues, the ability to require that this liquid manure be spread over greater land mass. I'm working nationally to ensure that there is groundwater testing so that we aren't drinking uh, manure-laden drinking water. Or in Lake Erie, where the algae bloom has gotten so bad because of the runoff from the CAFOs, the confined animal feeding operations, that the algae's bloomed and now the drinking water. In July, it was announced that the Lake Erie drinking water is no longer safe. Or the dead zone in the Gulf of Mexico because the Mississippi Basin running all of this manure and nutrient value down in, into the Gulf. Those are the things that I work on and point to to say that this current industrialized agricultural model is not sustainable. It doesn't sustain our rural economies. It doesn't sustain the farmer. It doesn't sustain the land. And it doesn't sustain the animals when you have to pump them through antibiotics all their life just to live in those stressful environments. And so there's lots of things that uh, we point to today and are working on nationally to try to make a difference. I work with the Humane Society of the United States, working with farmers who are good stewards of the animal and the land. Let's just take one break to remind everyone that they are listening to Food Sleuth Radio, and our guest is Mr. Joe Maxwell, who is Vice President of Outreach and Engagement for the Humane Society of the United States and a fourth-generation family farmer where he raises hogs in Missouri. Well, Joe, I'm glad that's a great segue. I'm glad you brought that up about the Humane Society because I think there's a lot of misinformation by design about the Humane Society. And if you go to the Humane Society website, which I highly recommend that our listeners do, simply go to humanesociety.org, you can learn about all sorts of campaigns. And basically, the mission of the Humane Society is what? How would you put it in a nutshell? The Humane Society of the United States mission is to uh, stop cruelty to animals and to celebrate those animals, to recognize them uh, as, as creatures 
And uh, we work every day, whether that's on the farm animals, on some of our farm animal protection, or the puppy mills, where we work very hard so that these female dogs are treated uh, uh, as we would want them to be treated, or whether it's trying to stop the Canadians from clubbing baby seals in the head just for their pelts that there's not really a market for anymore, spayed and neuter programs in the Philippines and in Mexico City. Uh, so the Humane Society of the United States has a far reach. Uh, it's an international organization as well and working in 7 to 15 countries any given year. Uh, I work just in the United States. Well, I think it's really interesting because I'm glad you brought up the puppy mill legislation because I remember when this was coming up to a vote in the state of Missouri and there were people online, you know, all sorts of social media networks saying, well, this is a slippery slope. You know, if we try to control these puppy mills, the next thing you know, they're going to be telling us how to raise our cows and our pigs. And it didn't seem right to make such a large stretch to say if we're trying to raise animals humanely, why would someone think that they're going to somebody's going to come on their farm and tell them they can't raise their their livestock? Well, well, it was a good argument to try to kill it. You know, fear is a great driving force. Uh, there are individuals in this country and in this state that think just because they can, they should. That's not new to the state of Missouri. It's not new to agriculture. Uh, we saw it in the great uh, in the late 1800s, early 1900s with uh, cattle barons and others uh, tromping across uh, settlers' yards and tearing down fences and uh, uh, you know, this mentality that just because I can, I should, is the one that, that causes the problems out there and the myths and the lies to be spread about those that want to say, look, you know, you shouldn't stack those dogs on top of each other. Or shouldn't the female have a, a solid lying area? Uh, you know, shouldn't this animal be treated with some type of respect? I believe, as the Humane Society of the United States believes, HSUS, uh, that we as humans have all the power in the equation. I believe that there's one creator, and we were given all this power. And we can either, either yield that power for good, or we can yield it for bad. And as it comes with the puppy mill bill, it, it, you know, we're saying, look, we've got all the power. You control these animals. They ought to be treated in a, in a certain way. But it doesn't mean that we're going to eliminate all animal agriculture. I'm a pig farmer. I'm sure not trying to put myself out of business. <laughs> Yeah, one of the big myths about the Humane Society is that it has a vegetarian agenda. And here you are working in the national office and raising hogs. So, so much for that. How did these rumors get started? Well, they get started. There's a guy by the name of Rick Berman, and he has been hired. He's one of the master spin doctors uh, out of Washington, D.C. He's taken on Mothers Against Drunk Driving. He's been hired by uh, tobacco companies. And he's been hired by these very large industrialized ag companies to take on the Humane Society of the United States because they see uh, HSUS as, as being a strong force for the way in which we should treat animals. HSUS has about 11 million members and constituents around the country, and they want to know where their food comes from. And industrialized ag does not want you to know where your food comes from. They want to hide that from you. And so they hired a guy by the name of Rick Berman, and he's a spin doctor, and he, he makes up these things and spins it out there and, and uh, sees what can stick. Oh, yes, I'm familiar with Rick Berman's work in the tobacco arena because of my work in public health. So when you mentioned oh, well, sure. his name, I thought, oh, yes, the yeah. master of spin indeed. He, he's very good at what he does. I chuckle. I guess I should, and it's kind of a shame that that's the way it works. And I think also one of the problems has been for the Humane Society of the United States is that 
we didn't do a good job here four or five years ago around the Prop B time really getting out and talking to the people and letting them know who we really are. I think we made some assumptions that people knew, that they knew that they could trust us, we had a good reputation, and uh, we allowed the Rick Bermans to come in and spin against us. Uh, so we're on guard now a little bit better, and we're out in the public more. That I was at the Rural Life Day. Uh, we want to be out with the public. We want them to know who the Humane Society of the United States is, what our programs are, what we stand for. I'm very proud as a, as a, a fourth-generation farmer to be part of the Humane Society. Its values are exactly in line with my family's values. Mm-hmm. And I'm really glad you mentioned this whole idea of, you know, I'm not a hippie, because I know so many conservative far-leaning Republicans, as well as left-leaning Democrats, both come together under the Humane Society umbrella. So any notions that the members of the Humane Society are a bunch of liberal hippies is totally wrong. That's right. We've got a very large tent at the Humane Society of the United States, and we have conservatives, as you indicated. We do have individuals that are fairly liberal, I'm probably in the middle. Now, if you look on the dietary scale, uh, our president and CEO, one of the reasons I think Rick Berman really claims we've got this vegetarian agenda is Wayne Pacelli is, is a friend of mine. He's, he's our CEO and president. He's a vegan, and I'm a pig farmer. And he and I work every day on the same goals and objectives. Uh, so uh, I think they just want to try to paint us in one corner and really miss who the Humane Society of the United States really is. And there is so much on the Humane Society website for educators. And I just want to bring this up because under your campaigns, you listed many of them. But I also pulled out another one, which was cruelty-free cosmetics. I don't know a woman that would, if she had a choice, a knowing choice, would choose a cosmetic that an animal suffered prior to developing that cosmetic. So there's that information. But most importantly, you have a wonderful curriculum for teachers about the media and propaganda. And I think that you know whether we're talking about policies that affect farms in rural communities or whether we're talking about puppy mill bills or cosmetics, you name it, propaganda in the media is such a strong player in terms of how we think about our food. And to be able to take a lesson plan from the Humane Society and apply it in the classroom simply to help students think more critically about the messages they receive in the media is critically important. That's right. And we believe education is, is the key to all of these answers. The majority of Americans, overwhelming number of Missourians and Americans, do not want to have cruelty to have been exhibited against an animal or any, anyone. Uh, when it comes to whether it's cosmetics or the clothing they wear or or the food that they eat. The key is is education. And that particular page that you're talking about helps us uh, educate kids to think through what is right, what's logically right, because we do have the spin doctors uh, such as Rick Berman spinning it out there, and it, it, it is a great page, and I do encourage people to go and take a look at our webpage. If you want to know who the Humane Society of the United States is, go to the webpage. Exactly. It's not complicated. We don't hide anything like industrialized ag tries to do with ag gag bills. That's right. And that was one of the issues that I wanted to talk about. You've got this perfect role because you have you are a farmer and you've worked in policy and now you're working nationally on much larger issues through the Humane Society. But in order for people to understand what really goes on on these industrial factory farms, 
takes somebody to witness what goes on and to tell those stories. And with these ag-gag laws, it would prevent people from learning how indeed their food is produced. What can we do? Well, first of all, you know, become aware. Start asking questions as a consumer and as a citizen. Understand that it that you can have the food system that you as the consumer wants. The power is in the consumer. McDonald's doesn't just change and get out of pork from uh, animals in gestation crates, a two-foot by seven-foot cage that the female animal lives in or sow all of her adult life. They, they did that because the consumers are demanding it. So the first thing is, is this show is just tremendous, Monday, allowing people to begin to think. And I would suggest to them start asking questions. Ag-gag is, is, I would suggest to every producer, every farmer in America should be opposed to ag-gag. There are some outliers in our industry that are just plain bad actors. Too often, we farmers or ranchers want to protect all of us, stick together. Well, that's the wrong answer. Covering up what's wrong in agriculture is going to harm our markets. It's going to harm our opportunity to continue to farm generations down the road. There won't be a fifth and sixth generation Maxwell out there. Mm-hmm. So, you know what, become aware, ask questions, and finally, ask your legislator what position they are. Did they vote to allow the Chinese company to purchase Smithfield in the, in the state of Missouri? The governor vetoed the bill. And they overrode the governor on a food policy bill on who's going to control 26% of our pork in this country uh, just went to the Chinese company. And they do not have a very good track record in China on food safety or children's toys or, you know, you name it, uh, we know what kind of track record that they have for food safety. But the consumer has to begin to ask questions mm-hmm. and demand that our elected officials be responsible for their votes. We just have a minute and a half left, and I have to ask one question because I always tell consumers or I recommend that they develop relationships with their representatives and have regular conversations, ask them questions. Being that you served as both a representative and a senator and lieutenant governor, do those phone calls really make a difference? They do. We had a policy uh, as few as five people calling or writing a personal letter on a single issue caused that to be on our docket for the week to figure out what's going on. So as few as five people in a district can can raise that issue to a level that the elected official looks around and says, hey, what's up? Hmm. When you don't, as a citizen, write those letters or make those phone calls, then the people, the special interest in those capitals that hire all those lobbyists control what's on that agenda. So it does make a difference. You'll hear the big boys say, oh, it doesn't make any difference. Oh, you know why they tell you that? Because they know the minute you call, you take away their power. So know your legislator. Go visit with them when they're in their district or go down to Jeff City or call them in Washington, D.C. and let them know what's on your mind. Joe, I want to thank you so very much for being my guest. We have been speaking with Mr. Joe Maxwell. He is currently Vice President of Outreach and Engagement for the Humane Society of the United States. Perhaps most importantly, he's a fourth-generation family farmer raising hogs in Missouri. And thank you so much for your service as Missouri State Representative 
State Senator and Lieutenant Governor. We are lucky to have you working with the Humane Society. In closing, I want to remind everyone that Food Sleuth Radio is produced at KOPN Studios by Dan Hemmelgarn in beautiful downtown Columbia, Missouri. Again, Mr. Joe Maxwell, thank you so much for being my guest and for enlightening us today. Thank you, Melinda.